Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. I've said this before, uh, but I think it's, it's worth repeating. Um, let's keep in mind uh, that the epistle to the Romans, like the other epistles, uh, was written as a letter and was read and heard in, in one sitting. Now, this is the Word of God. And so it is right that we, we break it up as we do and to look at it thematically and to, to look at it in, in depth. But let's also remember that in the broader context, uh, these are building into one another. And as I said at the conclusion of the service last week, uh, we need to remember when we come to the, the really difficult practical application of this section of Romans chapter 13, that it was preceded chapter after chapter after chapter, I might add, of all of the theology that was building to that. And so we need to keep this in mind as we come to the Word today, uh, that there are connections. And I'm going to do my best in a limited amount of time that I have to, to show you the connections, at least going back to chapter 12 and, and as it pushes us forward uh, in, in the text. Uh, but let's remember how all of this flows together and how Paul is building his argument overall in the general context. Now, with that introduction said, look with me at Romans chapter 13, verses 7 through 10. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the, command, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit. The Scriptures have been read, and so now your Word is to be preached, to be proclaimed. And so we ask that we would hear it, that we would hear it with joy. Oh God, by your Spirit, speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul concludes his admonition to submit to the governing authorities with a list of obligations. Specifically, as we read today in this chapter, verse 7, specifically taxes, revenues, or that could be translated fees, respect, and honor. And he directs us to pay what we owe. The verb used here, translated pay, could also be translated pay back. In fact, it's a financial term typically used to describe the payment of debt. Pay 
what you owe or pay back what you owe. And we might paraphrase the first part of the verse as, quote, pay back the debt that is owed to the governing authorities. That's a good paraphrase of what the original language says here. Pay back the debt that is owed to the governing authorities. So what's the general idea? What's the general idea that Paul is conveying using this financial term? Well, the general idea is that the benefits we receive from God-given government includes an ongoing obligation requiring a tangible payback, such as, what would be a tangible payback? Well, such as taxes and fees, but also an intangible payback, which is respect and honor. We are, as Jesus put it, to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And in this sense, you and I, we pay what we owe. But the language that Paul is using here begs a question. For the Christian, we are, if you look up at verse 15, we are commanded by conscience. And so if that is the case, are services rendered by the government our primary motivation for paying what we owe? Are we merely paying for the sake of the governmental benefits that we receive? Well, in a practical sense, yes, right? But that's not our motivation. That's not why we do what we do as Christians. If you are in Christ, we have a greater motivation for paying taxes, fees, respect, and honor. Listen carefully to Paul's intentional contradiction here. And let me add this, just a note for us as Bible students. Just because your English translation has breaks and headings at certain points doesn't mean that you should stay with those breaks and points. Uh, the, the heading there was added by the publisher. The paragraph break there is not in the original languages. So the translation, translator here is trying to help us with modern language organization. But in my study of the scriptures, I believe that chapter 7 and chapter 8, there shouldn't be a paragraph break there because of the use of the verbs. There's a connecting here. And here's what Paul does intentionally. He intentionally contradicts himself by saying, pay to all what is owed to them. Owe no one anything. Did you catch that? Pay to all what is owed to them. Owe no one anything. Now, in the original language, it is the equivalent of saying, pay your debts. Have no debts. Which would lead us, pragmatically speaking, to go, make up your mind. What are you talking about? Now what Paul is not doing here, what he is not doing here is inserting out of the blue a mini class on personal finance. That's not what he's doing here. So don't take one verb out of context and build an entire debt elimination theology on that. That is not what the Apostle Paul is doing here. So what is he talking about? Well, what Paul is doing is, in literary terms, he is applying rhetorical wordplay. He's taking that word, O debt, 
and owe nothing. And he's playing with them. He's bringing them together. And what he's doing, so eloquently I might add, what he's doing is he is drawing our attention to the motivation that drives us. Think about it this way. If I tell you, you have this enormous debt you have to pay. Well, how does that make you feel? Like, Whoa, that's serious. I need, I need to take this very seriously. It seems that the Apostle Paul is telling me this taxes and fees and respect and honor, this is a big deal in my life. And it is. And at the same time, when he says, oh, no, any, no one anything but love, he's taking that same concept and he's saying, but here's what drives you. And what doesn't drive you is legal enslavement. What drives you and me, all who are in Christ, is love. Own nothing but love and pay everything with it. That's the general idea that he's teaching here. And so to whom do we apply this love? We pay it back, owe no one anything but this love. To whom do we owe this love? Well, Paul directs us to, well, he directs us to each other, right? He directs you to me, me to you. He says, and I quote, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now, that language should sound very familiar to us, having studied through Romans. Those of us who read the Scriptures regularly, that should go, uh, 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 because that language is what's typically used when it's talking about us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Attention. I'm talking about this. Owe no one anything except you need to love one another. Repeating and re-emphasizing the importance. Back in chapter 12, what did Paul say? Love one another with brotherly affection. But Paul doesn't stop there. And it doesn't come across as clearly in the English translation as it does in the original language. But what he conveys here is that we are to love one another and, and there's someone else. There is, and it's translated here, another. I think it's better translated quite literally, the other. There is the other, other than one another, that we are to love. That's what he's saying here. And by the other, who is Paul talking about? Well, if it's not your brother and sister in Christ, who is it? your neighbor. Paul is saying that we are to owe no one anything except love for each other and love for our neighbor. And then Paul curiously, watch this, watch the flow of it, Paul curiously makes a point about paying with love that seems so out of place. Look at the text with me. The one who loves another, that is the other, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Think about that. What does paying with love have to do with the law? I mean, in, in my mind, if I'm just looking at this practically, I'm thinking, what? Doesn't love and, and, and law, it seems like those are opposites. How could love and law have anything to do with one another? How does love fulfill the law? And what does Paul mean here by fulfill? Well, to help us understand this, we need to understand the broader context. And so very briefly, I want us to look at the broader context here, going back to chapter 12. 
We're going to tie tie chapter 12 to chapter 13. And in the 12th chapter, Paul teaches us that the love of God is different from worldly love. Right? So when the world says love, they might be talking about godly love, but then again, they may not. But when Scripture talks about love, it's always talking about godly love. And what do we know, going back to chapter 12, what do we know? Like, In fact, if you get your Bible open in front of you, look back to chapter 12 and look at verse 9. What do we know about the love of God? Well, we know that it's genuine. We know that it is, it can also be translated, it is sincere. The, the, the Greek word there means unmasked. It's not hiding behind a mask. It's not faking it till you make it. It is genuine. What you see is what you get. That's godly love. And what does it do? Well, it hates, it abhors evil, and it holds fast to what is good. That's godly love. It hates what is evil. It holds fast to what is good. And as distinctly different, where is it revealed? Well, back in chapter 12, we learned that the love of God is revealed within the church and how we behave with one another and how we serve one another. And it is revealed outside the church. How? Well, the love of God is revealed outside the church in how we love and how we live with our neighbor graciously, emphatically, amicably, humbly, honorably, and virtuously. And then, as if that's not strange enough, and then in our passage today, Paul moves to the God-appointed means in which we live together with our neighbor. And, as I preached last week, how do we live together with our neighbor? We live under the governing authority. The, the, in Greek, the polis. The government in which we live, which we have, so we don't kill one another, right? We live together specifically in that government, and we are called to be subject to the governing authorities. But that's not all Paul says. Paul explains that God is the one who establishes and empowers the government as the, quote, servant of God for our good. And Paul directs you, and he directs me as Christians, to submit, not out of fear for wrath, but for the sake of conscience. There's that word conscience again. For the sake of our conscience. But why our conscience? Why not out of the fear of the wrath of the government? Why out of our conscience? Well, it's quite simple. Because behind the government is God. That's what Paul says. It can't be any more clear. Behind the government is God, and so we submit because God is the one who does it. And because first and foremost, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind, and that love directs how you live and how I live. In other words, we submit and we obey out of love for God, right? So this is tying all in, chapter 12, and moving into chapter 13, but... That's not all Paul says. He's not done, is he? Because in our passage today, we see that government exists for the sake of the people it governs. And you and your neighbor live together. And so, because we live together, under God-ordained government, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
And so we submit and we obey and we pay what we owe, whether taxes, revenue, respect, or honor. All of this for the Christian is done out of love for God and love for our neighbor. You see, it never comes from fear. It never comes from fear. It always comes from love of God and love of our neighbor. And this is why, to bring it all the way back to our passage, this is why Paul can say, quote, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Not in a justifying sense. He's not saying that we are justified by our legal compliance in Christ. He's not talking about a justification of righteousness. He's talking about obedience. He's talking about our obedience as Christians. Or to put it in another way, and this is the way that I would paraphrase what Paul is conveying here. Because Christ perfectly fulfilled the law, we are justified as righteous through faith in Him. And therefore, we faithfully obey God's law through Christ, loving as He has loved us. That's the general idea here. Let me repeat that so you don't miss it. Because Christ perfectly fulfilled the law, we are justified as righteous through faith in Him. And therefore, we faithfully obey God's law through Christ, loving as we have been loved. Now, this is a big problem for people that want to redefine love as something other than the love of God. This is a big problem. For example, somebody that wants to define love as an emotion. That's a a big problem, right? If someone wants to define love in opposition to reprimand or discipline, well, that's a problem. If someone wants to define love as tolerating evil, big problem, right? Because God teaches that His love abhors evil and clings to what is good. So Paul's explanation here can sound harsh and it can also sound contradictory to someone who defines love in a worldly way. I mean, think about this and how many of us have heard this. Sadly, I've even heard it in the context of a a wedding, uh, but we certainly get a a healthy dose of this in the, the American evangelical church in which how often have we heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 used wrongly to justify the absence of rebuke or discipline? Raise our hand, you know. I mean, we've all heard this over and over again. But on the contrary, what does Paul do here? To explain the love of God for our neighbor, and this will blow you away, Paul quotes the negatively stated commandments. Isn't that fascinating? Look at it with me. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Whoa! Pretty negative. Is that love? But such a series of shall nots surely should not lead us to consider it unloving. As some might argue. The law of God is love. For our God who is love It is His law. And so while the law of God can sound harsh to ears who want to manipulate Scripture, it is quite clear. The law of God is loving. Now, 
Think about the commandments that Paul gives us here. This is important. He references the Ten Commandments or the moral law. And as we understand it as Presbyterians, the first four commandments contain our duty towards God. The other six commandments contain our duty to man. This duty our Lord Jesus describes as love. Let's remember, how did Jesus put it? How did He summarize the Ten Commandments? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Summarizing the first four of the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus said, And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Summarizing the other six commandments. And so the negatively stated commandments have a positive purpose. What's the positive purpose of the negatively stated commandments? It's very simple, right? Love God, love others. It's that simple. Now, practically speaking, think about this. Now, just think about the commandments that Paul has given just in this text. How does not committing adultery, not murdering, not stealing, not coveting, how does this love our neighbor? Think about it for just a second. Now, for those who have dealt with the tragic consequences of adultery, for example, it's hardly a legitimate question. Now, one that has struggled with that wonders, huh, I wonder how that's not loving. The fallout from adultery leaves broken hearts and broken lives in its wake. To obey the seventh commandment shows not only restraint, but respect. Not only chastity, but charity. Though love has become a cultural idiom for sexual immorality, it can never be. That's the bizarre thing about our enemy's ploys. It is so blatantly contradictory to Scripture that we've just got to go, that's crazy. Sin against God and our neighbor is not love. Adultery is a sin against God and it wrongs our neighbor. That's crystal clear. Think about the other commandment. Murder is the fulfillment not of love, but what? But hate, whether it be in cold blood or heated tongue. Our propensity to murder by word or deed reveals in our heart a rebellion against God and a determination to destroy Man who is made in God's image. Interestingly enough, the same thing could be said about theft. Though it is not stealing God-given life, it is stealing what God gives. Matthew Henry notes this. He says, quote, Loving and being love, loved is all the pleasure, joy, and happiness of an intelligent being. God is love. And love is His image upon the soul. And as God is love, that which God gives, whether it be personhood or possession, to take it away is to sin against God who is love. But it's this tenth commandment that Paul references here. Isn't that tough? Thou shalt not covet. Huh. How is coveting not loving our neighbor. 
Well, covetousness is perhaps the most deceptive of sins and is pervasive, most notably within the culture in which we live. Consider the barrage of materialism we encounter daily and the, set, the resulting self-obsession. We are under the influence of materialism so frequently that many of us don't even realize that what it does so insidiously is it takes our mind off our neighbor and puts it on ourselves. And then if we're challenged on it, then we fight for self-protection and my rights and all of these things that are so prevalent in the culture in which we live. All of that flows from this sin that Paul lists here. It leads us to an increasing insensitivity to our neighbor's needs. We're blinded by our lust. But genuine love wants what is best for our neighbor. Genuine love What's one is best for our neighbor, even if it calls us to sacrifice our needs, even if it causes us to sacrifice our wants. Now, as if further summarizing how love fulfills the law, Paul then adds this. This is also, I think, a a curious addition. Paul then says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now, like the commandments that he gives, this is also stated negatively. But it can also be understood conversely. What would be a positive way of stating this? Well, do good to others, right? Love does no wrong to a neighbor could also be said as do good to others. And it is this doing good that Jesus conveys in his parable of the Good Samaritan. Have you read the Good Samaritan recently? I want you to listen to it. I, I'm, I'm going to read. It's a very short parable, actually. I want you to listen and listen so closely to this, like with fresh ears. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. We learn from this, Jesus' parable teaches us what it means to love our neighbor. What it looks like. Think about the story. The Samaritan had pity on the man. Although he was of a different race and of a different religious tradition. He personally cared for him, even at his own risk. He obligated himself even at his own reputation. He paid for his expenses, even from his own funds. He loved his neighbor, doing good to them, and thus fulfilling the law, Paul teaches. We must not let Jesus' parable be trapped in its first century context. Right? It's such a wonderful parable. Teaches so much. 
And it's so much better if we just leave it there. Right? God consistently puts people in your path and mine, and I might add in much less dire circumstances, to do good to them. To love them as God has loved us. Like our subjection to the governing authorities, we do good. Not out of our fear of wrath, but why? Because of our love for God and love for our neighbor. For God is love. And in His love, He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The Apostle John adds in his first epistle, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He paid a debt He did not owe that we might owe nothing. By grace through faith, His love bestowed that we might gain everything. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, we thank you for your love. Most specifically, your love to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask as your people that you would help us to love our neighbor as you have loved us. May we live out our lives as lives of love to you. In obedience to your commands. In love for the other. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www dot cpcfs dot org.